News is news, and the bottom is always good news for the news, because we mostly bad news. James McBride takes us to the bottom, this week on Selected Shorts. I'm Malik Pancholi, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Some publishing imprints take a century to achieve excellence. Others, like Riverhead Books, earn incredible acclaim in just 25 years. From its striking book covers to its diverse lineup of authors, Riverhead is a truly distinctive presence in modern publishing. On this Selected Shorts program, we showcase Riverhead and its many award-winning authors. Our first short piece comes from the writer Asia Gable. Her acclaimed novel, The Ensemble, was published in 2018, but this piece was commissioned exclusively for our live Riverhead show. This is actor Hetienne Park reading Asia Gable's story, Alarm. In the beginning, the two of us would lie in bed and sing along with the neighbor's broken car alarm, having memorized the changing tones. Wee-haw, Bloop, bloop, bloop. Mark would sing, making me laugh. I was told laughing in bed was a good thing. Anything to get the serotonin levels up, because a happy woman is a fertile woman. But then it was three weeks of watching Holly peek through her scarred window to beep off the alarm every time, 10 15 times a day, not even coming out of her bungalow, not even claiming the wailing that tore through our street. I made Mark do it. Dressed in black at 2 a.m., he tiptoed to that Honda and set the note under the wiper with tenderness. But then he bolted wildly from the car as its bleeding started up and ran straight through our front door, which is how, I think, Holly connected us to the note. (laughs) Please fix your car alarm. It's waking our baby. Thank you. Okay. So, we didn't have a baby for it to wake. But it was disrupting the possibility of a baby, of anything. Good sleep, good sex, the finishing of a novel, forward progress of any kind, really. Mark wasn't getting promoted. And I blamed the car alarm, jerking us out of sleep at dawn like an emergency. But there was never an emergency. Anyway, after that, the Honda disappeared. I'd love to meet your baby, Holly said weeks later, masked by her screen door, me watering our lawn like I was some Republican. (laughs) I bet you make beautiful babies. Mark said it probably wasn't an accusation, and why didn't I just say we didn't have a baby? But he wasn't there to hear that tremor of judgment. I know you're childless. So, even though our trash was filled with negative pea sticks and one square photograph of a zygote marinating at the bottom of the bin, and yeah, maybe it was undelicate, I took the dog's elephant toy, cut a seam, filled it with tennis balls, 
sewed it up and swaddled it. I made a deal of carrying it on my walks, bouncing it, cooing to it. My baby. I walked with my baby for months. I waved at Holly from the sidewalk, even though I couldn't see her. I could feel her expectant eyes. And now, not even Mark knows, I decided to expand the family even more. It would account for my decrease in evening walks. I'm so tired, I could say to Holly, if she ever asked. Pregnancy is hard. And the fake bumps online are only $25.99, and they come in all sizes. Uh, what's this? Mark asked one night, rubbing the spot on my shoulder where the suspenders had chafed under the weight. What should I have said? That I ordered the pregnant part of me we can't seem to conjure? And before you get home every night, I stuff it in the corner of the closet under all our dirty clothes? That when I wear the belly and carry the elephant, people look at me with soft, open faces? That it's all heavier than it looks? No. Instead, I just told him the truth. That I saw Holly's car on one of my walks. But this time, it was parked five streets over. She'd just moved it. And there it was, caning. I was afraid it would wake my baby. That was Asia Gable's Alarm, performed by Hetienne Park. I'm Malik Pancholi. On this show, we're celebrating the imprint Riverhead Books, which publishes the acclaimed writer Lauren Groff. Groff is the author of the novel Fates and Furies, and her recent collection of short stories, Florida, takes on the environment and the people of her adopted home. This is Maria Dizia reading Lauren Groff's story, Flower Hunters. It is Halloween. She'd almost forgotten. At the corner, a man is putting sand and tea light candles into white paper bags. He will later return with a lighter, filling the dark neighborhood with a glowing grid for the trick-or-treaters. She wonders if it's not hazardous to allow small, uncoordinated people with polyester hems near so many flames. All day today and yesterday, she has been reading the early naturalist William Bartram, who traveled through Florida in 1774. Because of him, she forgot Halloween. She is most definitely in love with that dead Quaker. This is not to say that she is no longer in love with her husband. She is, but after 16 years together, perhaps they have blurred at the edges of each other's vision. She says to her dog, who is beside her at the window, watching the candleman, one day you'll wake up and realize your favorite person has turned into a person-shaped cloud. The dog ignores her, because the dog is wise. In any event, her husband will inevitably win, since Bartram takes the form of dead trees and dreams, and her husband takes the form of warm, pragmatic flesh. She picks up her cell. She wants to tell her best friend, Meg, about her sudden, overwhelming love for the ghost of a Quaker naturalist, but then she remembers that Meg doesn't want to be her best friend anymore. 
A week ago, Meg said very gently, I'm sorry, I just need to take a break. Outside, in Florida, there's still the hot yellow wool of daylight. In the kitchen, her sons are eating their dinner of bean tacos glumly. They'd wanted to be ninjas, but she had to concoct something quickly, and now their costumes are hanging up in the laundry room. Earlier, she put her own long-sleeved white button-up backward on the younger boy, crossed the arms around, and tied them in the back, added a contractor's mask she'd slitted and colored with a silver sharpie, and because he was armless, pinned a candy bucket to the hem. <laughs> Cannibal lecture, he is calling himself. A little too on the nose. For the older boy, she cut eye holes in a white sheet for an old-style ghost, though it rankled. A white boy in a white sheet. Florida still the deep south. She hopes that the effect is mitigated by the rosebuds along the hems. She also forgot the kindergartner's spooky breakfast this morning. She failed to bring blueberry muffins, and her smaller son had sat in his regular clothes in his tiny red chair, looking hopefully at the door as mothers and fathers in their masks and wings, who kept not being her, poured in. She wasn't even thinking of him at that hour. She was thinking of William Bartram. Her husband comes in from work, sees the costumes, raises an eyebrow, remains merciful. The boys brighten as if on a dimmer switch. Her husband turns on Thriller to get in the mood, and she watches them bop around, a twist in the heart. It's not yet dusk, but the shadows have stretched. Her husband puts on an old green mohawk wig. The boys shimmy their costumes on again, and the three of them head out. She is alone in the house with the dog and William Bartram and the bags of wan lollipops that were all that remained on the drugstore's shelves. It's necessary to hand out candy. Her first year in the house, she righteously gave out toothbrushes. <laughs> and it wasn't accidental that a heavy oak branch smashed her windshield that night. She can almost see, three blocks away, into the kitchen of Meg's house, where beautiful, handmade costumes are being put on. Meg loves this shit. A week ago, when Meg broke up with her, they were eating ginger scones that Meg had made from scratch, and the bite in her mouth went so dry that she couldn't swallow for a long, long time. She just nodded as Meg spoke kindly and firmly and she felt each rip as her heart was torn into smaller and smaller pieces in Meg's capable hands. Meg has enormous gray eyes and strong hips and shoulders and hair like a glass of dark honey with sunshine in it. Meg is the best person she knows, far better than herself or her husband, maybe even better than William Bartram. Meg is the medical director of the abortion clinic in town, and all day she has to hold her patient's stories and their bodies, as well as the tragic lack of imagination from the chanting protesters on the sidewalk. It would be too much for anyone, but it is not too much for Meg. On the mantle in Meg's house, there are pictures of Meg with her children as babies secured on her back, all three peering at the camera like koalas. She, too, has often felt the urge to ride nestled cozily on Meg's back. She would feel safe there, her cheek against her strongest friend. But for the past week, she has respected Meg's wish to take a break, and so she has not called Meg or stopped by her house for coffee 
or sent her children down the street to play with Meg's children until someone ran home screaming with a bruise or low blood sugar. What is it about me that people need breaks from? She asks the dog, who looks as though she wants to say something, but out of innate gentleness, refrains. A generous kind of dog, the Labradoodle. Well, William Bartram won't need a break from her. The dead need nothing from us. The living take and take. She brings William Bartram in his book costume out to the front porch where it is cooler and fetches the candy in a bowl and the dog and the wine glass so big it can hold a full bottle of $10 Shiraz. She settles herself under the bat lights she plugged in because she forgot to make jack-o'-lanterns and watches real bats swinging between the rooftops. William Bartram seduced her with his drawings of horny turtles and dog-faced alligators, with his flights of ecstatic gratitude that lifted him toward God. A week ago, after the ginger scones and suffocating with sadness, she took the afternoon off from work and drove to Micanopy to look at antiques because she feels solace when she touches things that have survived generations of human hands. She stood in the center of Micanopy hating her unsweet tea because it was encased in plastic foam that would disintegrate and float on the surface of the waters forever. But then she found the plaque about William Bartram, who had passed through Micanopy in 1774 when it was a seminal trading post called Cuscoilla. The chief there at the time was called Cowkeeper. When Cowkeeper heard what Bartram was doing, traipsing about Florida, collecting floral specimens and faunal observations, he nicknamed him Puck Puggy. This translates roughly to flower hunter, which, as bestowed upon Bartram by a warrior and hunter and proud owner of slaves he'd stripped from the many tribes he'd brutally subjugated, was probably no great compliment. <laughs> Still, what would bright-eyed Puck Puggy have seen of Florida before the automobile, before the airplane, before the planned communities, before the swarms of mouseketeers? A trio of witches comes up the walk, and not one says thank you when she drops her bad candy in their bags. An infant dressed as a superhero, something like sweet potato crusted on his cheeks, looks on as his mother holds the pillowcase open for the treats and then clicks her tongue in disappointment. But her streak is a dark one and full of rentals, and the savvy trick-or-treaters mostly stay away. It's just before twilight, and the sky is a brilliant orange. She is inside the pumpkin. In the absence of tiny ghouls, the lizards come out one last time, frilling their red necks, doing push-ups on the sidewalk. Like Bartram, she was once a northerner, dazzled by the frenzy flora and fauna here. But that was a decade ago. She is no longer frightened of reptiles, she who is frightened of everything. She is frightened of climate change, this summer the hottest in history, plants dying all around. She is frightened of the small sinkhole that opened in the rain yesterday near the southeast corner of her house and maybe the shy, exploratory first steps of a much larger sinkhole. She is frightened of her children, because now that they've arrived in the world, she has to stay here for as long as she can, but not longer than they do. She's frightened because maybe she has already become so cloudy to her husband that he has begun to look right through her. She is frightened of what he sees on the other side. She is frightened that there aren't many people on the earth she can stand. The truth is, Meg had said, back when she was still a best friend, you love humanity almost too much, but people almost disappoint you. 
Meg is someone who loves both humanity and people. William Bartram loved humanity and people and also nature. He was a gifted and perceptive scientist who believed in God, which seems a rather gymnastic form of philosophy. She misses believing in God. Here comes a prospector with a tiny pick, two scary teenage clowns in regular clothes, a courtly family, the parents crowned regents, the boy a knight sheathed in silver plastic, the girl a fluttery yellow princess. What a relief she has boys. This princess nonsense is a tragedy of multi-generational proportions. Stop waiting for someone to save you. Humanity can't even save itself. She says aloud to the masses of princesses seething in her brain, but it is her own black dog who blinks in agreement. She reads by bat light and sees two William Bartrams as she reads. The bright-eyed 34-year-old explorer with the tan skin and sinewy muscles in the sketchbook, besieged by alligators, comfortable supping alone with mosquitoes and with rich indigo planters alike, and also Bartram's older, paler self in the quiet of his Pennsylvania garden, projecting his joy and his younger persona onto the page. Both Bartrams, the feeling body and the remembering brain, show themselves in his description of a bull gator. Behold him, rushing forth from the flags and reeds. His enormous body swells, his plaited tail, brandished high, floats upon the lake. The waters like a cataract descend from his opening jaws. Clouds of smoke issue from his dilated nostrils. The earth trembles with his thunder. Usually she's the one who trick-or-treats with the boys, with Meg and her three children. But this year, Meg is out with Amara, a banker who is nice enough, but who competes sneakily through her children. She can take Amara in small doses, the way she can take everyone except for her sons and her husband and Meg, the only four people on earth whom she could take in every dose imaginable to man. Maybe, she thinks, Meg and Amara are talking about her. They're not talking about me, she tells her dog. Something has changed in the air. There's a lot of wind now, a sense of something lurking. The spirits of the dead, she'd think, if she were superstitious. The dark has thickened, and she hears music from the mansion down the road where every year the neighbors host an extravagant haunted house. She is alone, and no trick-or-treaters have wandered by in an hour. The white sandbags of candlelight have burned out and the renters have all turned off their lights, pretending not to be home. She reads from Bartram's prologue where he describes his hunter companion slaughtering a mother bear and then coming back mercilessly for the baby. The continual cries of this afflicted child, bereft of its parent, affected me very sensibly. I was moved with compassion and charging myself as if accessory to what now appeared a cruel murder and endeavored to prevail on the hunter to save its life, but to no effect. For by habit, he had become insensible to compassion towards the brute creation. Being now within a few yards of the harmless, devoted victim, he fired and laid it dead upon the body of the dam. And now she is crying. I'm not crying, she tells the dog, but the dog sighs deeply. The dog needs to take a little break from her. (laughs) 
The dog stands and goes inside and crawls under the baby grand piano that she bought long ago from a lonely old lady, a piano that nobody plays, a lonely old piano. She always wanted to be the kind of person who could play the Moonlight Sonata. She buries her failure at this as she buries all her failures in reading. The wine is finished. She sucks a lollipop that only tastes red. She reads for a long time until she hears what she thinks is her stomach growling, but it is, in fact, nearby thunder. And just after the thunder comes the rain. And with the rain comes the memory of the baby sinkhole under the southeast corner of the house. Her husband texts, the boys and he have taken shelter up the haunted house. There's tons of food, all their friends, so much fun, she should come. But he knows her better than that. This would be the third circle of hell for her. She cannot abide parties. She cannot abide any friends when she's lost the best one. She can't even read Bartram anymore because the thought of the sinkhole is like a hole in the mouth where a tooth used to be. She prods and prods the sinkhole in her mind. The rain knocks at the metal roof and she imagines it licking away at the limestone under her house the way her children lick away at everlasting gobstockers, which they are not allowed, but which she still somehow finds in sticky rainbow pools in their sock drawers. The rain rains yet harder, and she puts on a yellow slicker and galoshes and goes out with a flashlight. Her face is being smacked by a giant hand, and another is smacking the crown of her head. She puts a fist over her mouth to find the air to breathe and stands on the edge of the small sinkhole, then crouches, because the light is weak in the downpour. No rain is collecting in the crater, which she thinks is extremely bad, because it must mean that the water is dripping through the small cracks below, which means there's a place for the water to go, which means there is a cavity, and the cavity could be enormous right here beneath her feet. She becomes aware of a stream of water licking its way down the end of her hair and into the collar of her slicker, and then slipping coolly across the bare skin of her left shoulder, and then over her left breast and across her lower left rib cage, and entering her navel, and unfurling itself luxuriously over her right hip. It feels remarkable, like a good cold blade across her skin. It is erotic, she thinks, not the same thing as sexual. Erotic is suckling her newborns, that animal smell and feel and warmth and tenderness. Laying her head on her friend's shoulder and smelling the soap on her skin. Letting the sun slide over her face without worrying about cancer or the ice caps melting. She thinks of Bartram in the deep semi-tropical forest, far from his wife, aroused by the sight of an evocative blue flower that exists as a weed in her own garden, writing in what is surely a double entendre, or if not, deeply Freudian, how fantastical looks the libertine clitoria, mantling the shrubs on the vistas, skirting the groves. This, this is what she loves in Bartram so much. The way he lets himself be full animal, a sensualist. The way he finds glory in the body's hungers and delights. Florida, Bartram's ghost has been trying to tell her all along, is erotic. For years now, she has been unable to see it all around her, the erotic. The rain, impossibly, comes down harder and even the flashlight is no help. 
She is wet and alone and crouching in the dark over an unknowable hole. And now she locates the point of breakage. Odd that it has taken so long. Two weeks ago, she called Meg at 11 at night because she'd read an article about the coral reefs in the Gulf of Mexico being covered with a mysterious whitish slime that was killing them. And she knew enough to know that when a reef collapses, so do dependent populations. And when they go, the oceans go. And Meg had answered, as she always does. But she had just put her youngest back to bed. And she was weary after a long day of helping women. And she said, Hey, relax, you can't do anything about it. Go drink the rest of the bottle of wine, take a bath. We can talk in the morning if you're still sad. That was it, that last call. Poor Meg, she is exhausting to everyone. She would take a break from herself too, but she doesn't have that option. For a minute, she lets herself imagine the larger sinkhole below the baby one opening very slowly and cupping her and the house and the dog and the piano all the way down to the very black bottom of the limestone hollow and gently depositing them there so far down that nobody could get her out. They could only visit. Her family's heads peering once in a while over the lip, tiny pale bits against the blue sky. From down there, everyone would seem so happy. She comes in from the rain. The kitchen is too bright. Surely, in the history of humanity, she is not the only one to feel like this. It was called the New World, but Puck Puggy understood that there was nothing new about it, as almost every step we take over those fertile heights discovers remains and traces of ancient human habitations and cultivation. She takes off the wet boots, the wet jacket, the wet skirt, the wet shirt, and shivering, picks up her phone to call her husband. The dog is licking the rain off her knees with a warm and loving tongue. If she says sinkhole, her husband will race home in the rain with her children and their goodies. They will put the boys to bed and stand together at the lip of the sinkhole. And maybe she will become solid again. And so, when he picks up, she will say, Babe, I think we have a problem. But she will say it in the warmest, softest voice she owns, having learned from a master the way to deliver bad news. She lets her hunger for her husband's voice grow until she is almost incandescent with it. As the phone rings and rings, she says to the dog who is looking up at her, well, nobody can say that I'm not trying. That was Lauren Groff's Flower Hunters, performed by Maria Dizia. I'm Malik Pancholi. When we return, we're going all the way to the bottom. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide.
Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Malik Pancholi. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to selectedshorts.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. To be sure you never miss a story, subscribe to the Selected Shorts podcast, and you will also get episodes of our new spinoff podcast, Selected Shorts Too Hot for Radio. All you need to do is search for Selected Shorts on iTunes and hit subscribe. On this Selected Shorts, we are celebrating a quarter century of Riverhead Books. Our next story is another piece that was commissioned for our live show. This short tale of loss and regret comes from writer R.O. Kwan. Tempo is performed by Hetian Park. Since it had been so long since his last flight, I let Paul have the window seat I'd have preferred. I was in college, a sophomore. I'd already flown enough that I disliked flying as the hassle it was. But Paul was in high school, five years younger than I was. That's always how I figured out my little brother's age, is mine less five, and it's still how I do it, though this sibling math no longer applies. And he kept the porthole window open. He stared out, marveling. The plane lifted. He rested his forehead on the transparent plastic, his thick, childish cowlick curling up. I'd have liked to level it with my palm gently, but I didn't. While I was away at school, he'd gotten old enough to balk at being touched. It was late spring. It had started raining, but only here and there, as Paul pointed out, with parts of the sky unclouded blue, from his airborne perspective, positioned like a bird or god. The rained-upon portions of the city looked stained. He pitied the people chilled beneath a wet gray sky, limited by their point of view, not knowing that a good day with sunlight could be had just a few hills away. I laughed at him, my spendthrift brother, spilling pity on total strangers. Paul, lately I've watched a lot of live opera. You'd love it, the opera. It's an art form intent on eliciting pity. But I find that what I crave are the preludial minutes with the lights still on, the audience talking, the players in the orchestra pit tuning up instruments, the violins, the harp, piccolos, each playing as they like without thought of harmony. That discord, the ear trying to pick out a pattern. In time, order prevails. Music like this is set to a tempo which provides the form of what happens next. Give me a couple of measures and I'll have the beat. Until then, chaos. So perhaps our lives, which look so patternless, aren't random, disordered, shot through with haphazard pain. Maybe, Paul, I just don't see the full measure. It's possible we're part of a longer song, or so I tell myself, 
at least until the opera ends. That spring, you visited me at school. Then you left on your own. I didn't fly with you again. I can't recall the rest of that last flight. I should have noticed more, stashed away what memories I could. There's a lot I didn't know. Back then, I'd have thought that losing someone I loved might be like quitting an addiction, like alcohol. It'd be terrible, especially at first, but in time, I'd mind the loss a little less. That's not how it is, though. It's not like that at all. Paul, it's like giving up water. The longer I go without, the more I thirst. R.O. Kwan's Tempo was read by Hetien Park. Our final story, Buck Boy, comes from James McBride. It deals with death, race, and politics. But it's quite funny, too. This is Tegel Bouget reading James McBride's Buck Boy. We was rehearsing over Mr. Wu's grocery and Chinese takeout one day when the following happened. We hear gunshots. First, we stop playing and hit the floor because in the bottom, you don't know who the good guy is. Then we hear Mr. Wu shouting downstairs and we run down and see him standing over Buck Boy Robinson. And Buck Boy be about 17 years old, I guess. Don't matter now, cause he laying on the floor dead as a doornail. Blood is every place. Buck Boy dead as he was, still got a knife in one hand and a fistful of dollars in the other. His hand was clutching that money tight, like he never won't let it go. Mr. Wu is a little old man who wear a yellow straw hat, whether he's Chinese or Korean, I don't know. But he let my band rehearse upstairs over his stove for free. He holding a gun. He drop it like it's a firecracker and walk around in a little circle, wringing his hands and talking in Chinese or whatever. I couldn't understand a word. Two cops come quick, chase everybody out the store, close it down, and take the gun from the floor. They leave us inside because we are witnesses. The cop asked Mr. Wu what happened. He tried to rob me, Mr. Wu say. He don't look too hot. His face is pale and he looked like somebody punched him in the stomach. The cops have a heck of a time prying that money out of Buck Boy's hand. Finally, they get it out and hand it to Mr. Wu, but the Chinese shake his head. Just get him out, he say. He don't look at Buck Boy when he talk. By this time, the whole neighborhood show up, including Buck Boy's sister, Victoria, who be shouting and screaming outside Mr. Wu's store. The cops ask us questions, but we really didn't see nothing. So the cops call the black van to come get Buck Boy. The van takes its time to get there, but Buck Boy, he ain't in no hurry now. So we sit there a half hour, me, Dex, Goat, Bunny, Dirt, the cops, Mr. Wu, and Black Boy. I seen that black boy was wearing a brand new pair of white and purple sneakers. 
Nobody around here liked Buck Boy too much. He always be looking for trouble, and he always be strung out on something what they call PCP or, or, or whatever that makes you lose your mind. Drugs was his main line, but he'd steal anything. Steal a purse, steal a chrome off a car, steal a whole car. The worst he did was he stole our whole school bus two years ago when we was on it. He crashed it into a light pole on the boulevard and banged us up pretty bad and run off. I don't think he went to jail for it. So nobody cried too much when they carried Buck Boy from Mr. Wu's grocery except for his sister Victoria. It's kind of sad because his mother never paid him no mind from when he was a little boy. And I heard people say she strung out on drugs herself. The whole Robinson family is bad news. Now, no sooner do they load Buck Boy into the van then television trucks come flying up. They come all the way from Morgantown, West Virginia, 28 miles across the state line, even though we is in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, a whole different state. The news don't care. News is news. And the bottom is always good news for the news, because we mostly bad news. The reporters, they jump out and bust through the crowd like cops. Right behind them come Reverend Jenkins. Now, he is the preacher of my church. Bright Hope Baptist Church. I read a story in the newspaper once that say, ever since the 1980s, Reverend Jenkins has been the community leader of the bottom. Now, I don't know what that is, but it do seem like whenever there's fresh cooked chicken or a television camera around, Reverend Jenkins don't be far off. When people talk about how much they hate Reverend Jenkins, my ma say, I don't hate his guts, he's full of my food. Reverend Jenkins cover a lot of ground just standing in one place. He's a big, fat man. I, I seen him undress at the pool one time, and it took me five minutes to see all of him. <laughs> he got a slick back hairdo, and he wearing one of his fine suits. He sports some of the most killing suits you ever seen. He's gone with the pink pinstripe suit today, and when he bust through the crowd, people bounced off him like he was a beach ball. He hit the door of Mr. Wu's the same time the newsmen do, but Mr. Wu had locked it and pulled the shades down. Oh, hell, Reverend Jenkins say. Then he starts talking loud about Buck Boy being shot to death. Poor old Buck Boy, and it was a shame he was so young and that he was tired of the foreigners always coming to the bottom and starting up stores and treating the blacks like they ain't nobody after black folks spend all their money on them. And after a while, he make it sound like Mr. Wu come all the way over here from China or wherever just to shoot Buck Boy. The newsmen kind of swill around and try to peek inside Mr. Wu's store. Then Reverend Jenkins say, we're going to do something about this. We need an investigation. When he say that, the newsmen whip their heads up like hunting dogs who sniff a fox in the wind. They pull out their cameras and notebooks and turn on their tape gizmos and rush him. Uh, what kind of investigation, uh, one newsman asked. He got silver hair whipped up so much it looked like cotton candy. A big investigation, Reverend Jenkins say. Why, there should be no bigger investigation than this one. There should be a granddaddy investigation. You mean a grand jury investigation, one newsman say? Don't put words in my mouth, Reverend say. But then he's quiet a minute, and you can almost hear the machines in his mind clicking and spinning back and forth. Now, he preached a fine sermon, but when he teach Sunday school, I could read better than him. And I'm only 12. 
You're right, he says. We want the grandest jury investigation for all of it. The reporters look at him and a couple of them start laughing. <laughs> that get Reverend hot. He swell up inside his suit and it seems like the grease from his hair start to melt and spread and cover his face. I'm saying that boy is a victim, he said. That Korean had a gun. If that boy was white, would he be dead today? Would that Korean have shot him? Maybe he just went to get something to eat. Maybe the cops planted a weapon on him. Only God knows, he say, and he pull out a handkerchief to wipe his face. Because the cops ain't telling. But the truth is, we tired of our children being gunned down like animals. We're tired. We're going to march. Reverend Jenkins can't read too good, but he sure got away with words. This crowd getting warm now. Yeah, yeah, they say, let's march. It is the march tomorrow, a news lady holler out. She's a blonde lady. I seen her on TV before. She looks so good on television, you want to kiss her. But in person, she got so much powder on her face, she looked like a dust bag from a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> on TV, she looks young. But in person, she looked like she was born in the year of only God know. If she was two-faced, I think she could have used the other one. I was just so shocked to see her that, that, that way. But my friends, Goat and Bunny, they was in love and they can't take their eyes off her. There is no tomorrow for my people, the Rev say. We will start right now. We will boycott this store. We will stand out here every single day and march and starve to death before we buy goods from a murderer. These foreigners treat us like second-class citizens. They shoot our children. They get minority loans from the government. We're sick of it. We ain't taking no more. We are fed up. We gon' march. Now, the crowd is fired up and newsmen are filming the whole thing. Everybody in this crowd I just about know, and they all know Mr. Wu ain't like the people from Sun Young Restaurant three blocks down who put bulletproof glass over their counter and take your money and make sure not to touch your hand before they pass out the food to you and treat people from the bottom like they ain't nobody. But everybody's laughing and watching Reverend Jenkins. He fun to watch when he get his wheel spinning. He, he really hot now. Ah, Reverend Jenkins say, ah, 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 I'm tired, Lord. A boy is dead. Ha. And he wipe his face with his handkerchief and start stuttering like he in church. I knew this boy for years. He should have had a long life. What else did he have? He had no dreams. He had no hope. He had no aspirations. Ah, but life. He had life. That's the one thing they couldn't take away from him. And now look, they took that away. Ah, we are tired. We ain't taking it. Yes, yes, said the crowd. Reverend Jenkins point to Mr. Wu's store behind him. We will march here tomorrow at the same time to see that this boy gets justice and this man gets driven out of here. And until he leaves, we ain't quitting. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall not be moved. And he shout them last words so loud, one newsman with headphones yanked them off. The funny part is, if Buck Boy Robinson saw Reverend Jenkins in his fine pink suit walking down the boulevard at night, he'd rob him down to his socks. No problem. And Buck Boy would never protest for Reverend Jenkins if Reverend Jenkins was shot for holding up a stove. The next day, 
the bottom it was jumping. Everybody and their brother show up. A bunch of white people come from town and from all the big towns around show up wearing t-shirts that say C-A-R-A-O, which means Coalition Against Racism and something. The, the guardian angels, like, like the kind they got in New York City, they come all the way from Pittsburgh. And more newsmen than I ever seen before. Fat newsmen, old newsmen, black newsmen. I even seen newsmen from China or, or Japan, and they look like Mr. Wu. They go all over the neighborhood asking about Buck Boy and Mr. Wu. Except they don't call him Buck Boy no more. They call him Regis. I never knowed his real name was Regis. Reverend Jenkins get a bunch of people walking around in a circle in front of Mr. Wu's store. But Mr. Wu was still closed. They marched anyway, singing, we shall overcome. And the TV cameras filmed it. But it wasn't too exciting. I didn't hardly know none of them protesters, except Victoria Robinson and Reverend Jenkins. My whole band was there, the Five Carat Soul Bottom Bone Band. Every member, even some of the old ones we threw out, like Pig, who don't never rehearse, and Adam, who they call Dirt, who always smells funny. It, it, it was them two plus Bunny, Dex, Dex's brother Ray Ray, Beanie, and Goat. We was in a fix. Our drums and guitars and Pig's saxophone was locked over Mr. Wu's door because he was holed up someplace tight and out of sight. We wanted our gear, but nobody was listening to us. They was busy selling beer and hot dogs to all them new people, the guardian angels and the C-A-R-A-O t-shirt people and the white people from Morgantown and Pittsburgh and a few black folks I never seen before, not people from the bottom, not too many people from the bottom who knew Buck Boy would march for him. It wasn't more than 40 people out there, but that night, I see it on television, and it looked like a real protest, with Reverend Jenkins out there leading hundreds of people, chanting and shouting and singing, we shall overcome, with Reverend Jenkins out front hollering and screaming. My mother watched it too, and she laughed and said, Hillary is a fool. Hillary is Reverend Jenkins' real name. See, my mother went to high school with him. Next day, the bottom fill up with even more newsmen and protesters. And it's so many people swilling around on the boulevard with new signs and more songs, they stop traffic. They talking about burying Buck Boy soon. And the television people interview Buck Boy's mother who say she don't have no money to bury him. Next thing you know, all sorts of money coming in. My sister Sissy knows Buck Boy's sister Victoria, and Victoria told her that so much money come over the Robinson's house that Mrs. Robinson needed three shoe boxes to put it in. She say one rich black man from Pittsburgh brought $1,200 cash to the house. Victoria said her mother bought a brand new refrigerator, plus a giant TV set, and some new couches. Buck Boy died on a Saturday. By Thursday, the bottom was still so full of newsmen knocking on doors that folks was running from them. So the newsmen started interviewing each other. Reverend Jenkins, he, he got his friend preachers to bring their churches from places out of town to keep the protest going. And more white folks, like college students from Morgantown, West Virginia, showed up yelling, we're not taking it anymore. They seem like nice people. I sure hope they leave the bottom before dark. They don't get around to burying Buck Boy till the following Monday because they was fussing over a place big enough for the service. 
First, they plan to have it at Gilbert Funeral Home on the boulevard, but it only fits about 70 people. Then they move it to Mr. Wallace's funeral home on Simmons Avenue, but that got Reverend Jenkins upset. He said, well, why not take it to his church, which holds 400 people? They fuss about it and fuss about it, even on TV, and it makes me a little sick. They fighting over who can bury Buck Boy Robinson, of all people. Nobody did nothing when Leonard Evans got shot in the back on Washington Avenue by that white cop for nothing. Or Stella Brooks got raped by her father, and he got away with it. But Buck Boy, who robbed a school bus and tried to rob Mr. Wu, he's a hero now. The day of the funeral, there must have been 500 people packed inside Reverend Jenkins' Bright Hope Baptist Church and a ton of people outside who couldn't fit in, shoving each other to get to the front where me and the rest of the band had camped out. They put me up front because I played an organ, but they didn't need me. They got a special organist all the way from Cleveland to play. Boy, he was something. He revved up the crowd with them old songs. He was wearing the shiniest shoes you ever saw. And when he played, he put his shiny shoes aside on a nice handkerchief on the floor next to the organ and played the organ pedals in his socks. And them socks didn't have gnar hole in them. Meanwhile, Reverend Jenkins was up front talking to the reporters from the pulpit till the last minute, and he had a long time to talk to them because nobody had brought Buck Boy's body in the church yet. Well, we just waited. Everybody is standing around waiting and waiting and singing, and after a while, the big shot organ player from Cleveland, he run out of songs and had to get something to drink. He walked off the organ, and now it's just people standing around. The body of Buck Boy is very late. Now, finally, we hear the crowd holler outside, and we know Buck Boy's coming. Something about the noise the crowd made gave me a funny feeling. And when they brought Buck Boy, I know why they hollered. They had him in a pine box, and the first thing one of the newsmen say is, why, that sure don't look like much of a casket. Then somebody laughed and then somebody else laugh. Buck Boy's sister and uncle and about a hundred cousins is up front and everyone is real quiet, just looking at that little box with four little handles on it, no fancy looking paint, nothing. You could see it was the lowest, cheapest casket come from out of Charles' bargain store someplace. The funeral men carrying it set it down in front of the church and took off like they was ready to duck bullets. Reverend Jenkins is looking around for somebody to open the casket, but nobody moved. Finally, he opened it. Buck Boy looked fine, got a nice suit on, but that casket got to go. Reverend Jenkins looked around the front rows and asked for Buck Boy's mother. She ain't there. I see Victoria Robinson standing there shrugging. So Reverend Jenkins got on the podium and sprint through his sermon like nothing's wrong, though he's got one of them we'll get to this later looks on his face. Soon as it's over, the funeral men come back and lift Buck Boy to the hearse while Reverend Jenkins march out of the church in his robes, hollering about the Gilbert funeral home and all the money they gave Mr. Gilbert for the funeral. There was about a hundred people following him and they were hot. Mr. Gilbert's funeral home is right around the corner. Reverend bang on the door, and Mr. Gilbert open up and peek his head out. He see that mob, and he don't open the door all the way. 
He's a spooky old man and he smell funny and he always cranky, but his son Adam, who they call Dirt, plays guitar very good. Nobody but us want Dirt in their band because he smell funny and everybody know he worked with dead people. I ought to skin you, Randy, Reverend Jenkins say to Mr. Gilbert, and the crowd behind him raise up like they ready to trample Mr. Gilbert. It's not my fault, Mr. Gilbert say. I can't bury nobody for free. By God, we had $4,000 in donations for that boy, Reverend Jenkins snaps. Nobody gave me nothing, Mr. Gilbert says. I swear to you, Hillary, I've had him in here more than a week, and I didn't get a dime from nobody. No suit for him to wear, nothing. Didn't charge him for storage either. Reverend Jenkins, he turned and looked at Victoria Robinson, who had marched over there and was standing right behind him. My, my mother said she sent the money, Victoria say in a low voice, but she got a low jump in her voice. And right then and there, I knowed what happened. Mr. Gilbert say to Victoria, I tried to call your house, but y'all ain't got no phone. I went by there, but nobody answered the door, and there were reporters all over. I went by a couple times. And then he turned to Reverend Jenkins and say in a dry way, I called you several times too, Hillary, but you wouldn't return my calls either. The Reverend bites his lip, sway in his robe, then reach down and pull up his church robe to get at his pants pocket. I'll pay for the suit and the casket right now myself, he say. Nope, Mr. Gilbert say. It's been paid for. By who? Mr. Wu. He come by and paid me an hour ago. He gave me enough for a nice casket and a nice suit. I only had time to buy the suit. I don't have time to order another box. And I didn't have no spares around here I could use in the meantime, neither. It took all afternoon to sort out what happened at Mr. Gilbert's funeral home. For now, everyone knowed Mrs. Robinson took all them donations and used them to buy televisions and couches and dope and whatever else. There was a lot of people in that crowd that wanted to find her and beat her brains out. But Reverend Jenkins said, let it go. He told the newsmen to not say anything about it, and a lot of them said they wouldn't, but they did anyway. The Reverend didn't care. He had his hands full keeping the folks from trying to fry Mrs. Robinson. And I think they would have gone no matter what if it wasn't for Victoria Robinson. That business tore her up and you could see it. She was only 14, but she growed up right then and there. She really ain't so bad like the rest of them Robinsons. After a while, Reverend Jenkins say he had to go to the graveyard and say the last words over Buck Boy. So a bunch of us ride in the church van with him. Me, Mr. Gilbert, Victoria Robinson, my sister Sissy, Goat, Adam, Bunny, Dex, and his brother Ray Ray. Just about the whole five-carat soul bottom bone band. When we got to the graveyard, it was almost dark outside and very quiet. The graveyard man had left the gate open, but there was nobody around and you almost couldn't see because there were no lights and it was getting dark and lonely with the wind blowing. Reverend Jenkins drove in on the paved road and said it suddenly occurred to him that he didn't know where to find Buck Boy's grave because he'd rushed out of the church before anybody could tell him where it was. But I knew, 
and I told him to keep driving around those little curvy roads till I told him to stop. When I saw Mr. Wu standing by himself on a little hillside with his yellow straw hat in his hand, I pointed and told Reverend Jenkins, that's where Buckboy is buried. And that's where he was. Tegel Bouget performed James McBride's story, Buck Boy, as part of our celebration of Riverhead Books. I'm Malik Pancholi. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant, and the readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our hosts are recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deardorff Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Schubert Foundation, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the William H. Donner Foundation, the Seedlings Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sherman Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Joseph and Joan Cullman Foundation for the Arts. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature. Additional support for this program comes from this station. Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space. 